0: Last week was a blessing. I was just thinking we're winding up our, our series, our 10-week series on the one act of righteousness. Uh, today's our last time. We're talking about the, the second coming of Christ. And last week we were blessed to have uh, Chris Lim bring us Scripture. So I, th- I hope you all were encouraged by that. I know I was, uh, particularly because a couple weeks earlier I had some, a root canal done, and so it was nice to get just a little bit of a break uh, from the preaching. Um yeah so yeah so I had a root canal done and and I always think about two things when I when I'm at the dentist number 1 I think about Taco Bell and I think about the second coming of Christ and so I think about Taco Bell because my dentist is right over here on La Paz and Crysantos. So every time he sits me in the chair, uh, directly in front of me is the Taco Bell right there in the corner. And this, the, second, the reason I think about the second coming of Christ is because, and some of you know this story, when I uh, became a, an, a recent convert to Christianity, I, had to go to, I was going to the dentist and had really bad teeth. And the dentist told me, hey, if you don't take care of your wisdom teeth, this is going to be really bad. And I remember looking at him because, you know, I'd just been a Christian for about two years at the time, learning all this stuff about Christianity. And I looked at him, and I I happened to be learning about, you know, uh, eschatology, the last things, right? And talking about Jesus coming back. And I said, well, how much time do I have, Doc? He says, you got about ten years at the most. I was like, whoa, Doc, don't worry about it. Jesus is going to be back by then. Not a problem. Forget about it. Well, that was 30 years ago. So, um, You know, what and how you think about the second coming of Christ will make an impact in your life, all the way down to your dental care, apparently. So let me ask you this question. What do you think about when you think of the second coming of Christ? Maybe a better question to be asked is, when was the last time you actually stopped and thought, hey, Jesus is coming back, right? When was the last time you had that question? Would it surprise you to know that the second coming of Christ was a dominant theme for the faith of the New Testament church. Now, there might even be some of you here who, who you know, maybe you're new to the Christian faith. Like, I even heard that Jesus is going to come back. Was it, was it not good enough the first time? Or why is he coming back a second time? We'll talk a little bit about that. There might even be one or two of you here that just say, this is hooey Jesus coming back. You know, you can barely believe he came the first time, let alone a second time. And there might even be one or two of you who all you think about when you think about Christianity is Jesus coming back. Right now, I've known some people like that. And I just want to ask if you happen to be one of those people, do you think about it in terms of that it's an intellectual puzzle that you have to solve? Or is it a perspective that helps you build deeper worship of Christ? Because that is important. I mean, after all, prophecy and and teaching about the end times is the closest thing we have to uh, acceptable conspiracy theories in the church. So that might scratch that itch, right? So you get really involved in things like Jesus' second coming, but you miss the point of what it's about. All that to say is there's many directions we can go with this morning's sermon. We could go uh, the apologetics route, spend a lot of time explaining and trying to convince you Jesus is coming back for sure. We could take the explanation route. We can lay out a timeline of events and try to figure out the details and the symbology. We could take the historical account and talk about how Christians thought about this through the ages and why. Now, all of those would be appropriate. But at the end of the day, why we gather on Sunday mornings, it's not just to to be convinced of intellectual truths, it's not just to understand things better, it's to worship. And so the way I want to talk about the second coming is I I hope to talk about it in a way that it will increase your ability to worship Christ, and in doing so, build some hope in you, because hope, the kind of hope that the Bible offers, ought to lead to change in the way we live our lives. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. So, I want to uh, ask and answer two simple questions. And so the way I'm going to do this is the first question, I'm going to load it up with three different verses to answer that question. And the second question, I'm going to load it up with three simple words to answer that question. So I just kind of give you the structure of what's going on. We're going to do a lot of flipping back and forth in scripture. So if you want, if you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter one, to Acts chapter one, starting in verse nine, that verse is going to seem similar or familiar to you because we've actually already looked at that verse. And when we talked about Jesus's ascension, and I hope what you find as 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 we look at many of these verses that are very familiar to you, that there's a lot of what we're talking about that necessarily has overlap because it makes sense. What we've been talking about in this series, the one act of righteousness, for a lot of us, it's been, well, this is what Jesus did, but we have spent 10 weeks to stop and look at every aspect from His incarnation to His sinless life to His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His session, His intercession, Pentecost, and the second coming, nine elements of it. And, and for some of you, I know that's been the first time you've actually thought about what Jesus did in such a, a thoughtful, deliberate manner. So the first question is, what does the Bible teach about Jesus's second coming? And, and again, if you're familiar with, with eschatology or the doctrine of last things, you know there's a thousand ways we can approach this. And, and, and some people have built entire careers on just this issue. I just wanna address the fact of Jesus' second coming. I want to show you so that you know where to go or so you have confidence or you can share with others, where does the Bible teach that Jesus is actually coming back? So three verses to answer the first question, three words to answer the second question because the second question is about why it's significant. Why should we care that Jesus is coming back, right? So two different ways we're going to approach that. All right, so what does the Bible uh, teach about Jesus' second coming? And let me turn over to the book of Acts as well. Acts chapter one. And I, like I said, this was the verse we looked at talking about Jesus' ascension. And, and one, one thing I hope happens as we have been doing this series, that you're reading, the way you read Scripture is becoming so much more deep. In other words, you're going to start seeing and hearing things in the same Scripture verses that you hadn't noticed before just simply because we've been thinking about it a little differently. So here's Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 9. And when he had said these things, he, speaking of Jesus... As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this is the same verse we talked about, about Jesus' ascension, but did you notice what the angel said? Why are you standing looking into heaven? This same Jesus, he's going to come again in the same way. So Acts chapter 1 makes it really clear. He's coming back. And if you remember, when we talked about Jesus' ascension, Acts 1, write, if you're a note-taker, write down Daniel 7, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Because Luke, as he's writing this narrative, he's, he's pulling together all the, this massive teaching on Jesus and what he had done, and he's intentionally kind of framing it in the ways and the words of Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel 7, you remember what it says, and there was one, a son of man approaching the Ancient of Days in clouds. What's well, very coincidental that Luke makes a big deal of mentioning the clouds that Jesus goes on and comes back in because he's trying to let the reader know, oh, this is that mysterious figure that we heard about in Daniel's prophecy, Daniel 7, and here, here he is, Jesus Christ. So Acts chapter 1 makes it clear, Jesus is coming back again. Now, let me read to you Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. You don't need to turn there, but what I would like you to do is go to Revelation 19, because we will read that in a little bit. So while you're turning to Revelation 19, let me read what the writer of Hebrews 9 says about Jesus coming back. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is coming back. Did you notice he actually makes it very explicit? He talks about Jesus coming back, the, fir- coming the first time, and he says, and he's coming back a second time. Not to deal with sin, although he's already done that, although there's in some sense he will deal with it, but to save those who eagerly await for him. Now, if you were at our Lord's Supper service last week, we talked about this already-not-yet concept that's all through the Bible, that already realities have happened because of the work of Christ that are not yet quite uh, fulfilled. Already, we have been delivered from sin. Certainly, it's penalty, most of it's power, but not yet have we been delivered from its presence. So we're already delivered, but not yet. Already, you are sons sons and daughters of God, but not yet fully what that's going to be revealed to be. So there's this dynamic. The already, not yet, and Hebrews 9 is saying he's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So, Acts 1 tells us he's coming back. Hebrews 9 says he's coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting for Christ? All right, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but man, we guys, outside of this year, we live in the most amazing time of where we got all the creature comforts and, and it's so awesome. We lose sight of the fact that we live in a broken, fallen world. And we start to think, yeah, this is pretty good. I like it here. And we stop being eager for the coming of the Lord. All throughout history, Christians have been eager for the coming of the Lord. Finally, Revelation 19, you guys should be there by now. I want to read this passage to you, and if you're not very familiar with your Bible, I hope this kind of is, a, it blows your mind, gives you a different category or way to think about Jesus. When most people think about Jesus, you know what they tend to think about? The Christmas Jesus, right? Or maybe the Easter Jesus. They don't think of the second coming Jesus, right? And let me, desc- let me read John's description of the second coming of Jesus, and wow what a description here it is revelation 19 starting in verse 11 then i saw heaven opened and behold a white horse the one sitting on it called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on written that no one knows but himself verse 13 he is clothed in a robe dipped Wow. Get a picture of that Jesus in your mind. Not the baby in the manger, right? Not a man on a cross, but a conquering king. The picture of Revelation 19, if if Acts 1 is saying, he's coming back, make no doubt about it, he's coming back. If Hebrews 9 is saying, and he's coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, Revelation 19 is saying, his coming back is going to be unmistakable, he's going to be unstoppable, and he's going to be victorious. So does the Bible teach the second coming of Christ? Absolutely. And we just looked at three short verses that make it really clear that He's coming back. And friends, there are like eight or nine other passages we could have gone to that I'm not even going to talk about this morning. But the point is, the Bible teaches He's coming back, and He's coming back to save, and it's going to be unmistakable. He's going to be unstoppable, and He's going to be victorious. Now, when you stop and think about it, we need the doctrine of the second coming of Christ if for no other reason but to explain the explosive growth of the church. You think about it. We need this doctrine to explain the explosive growth of the church because, I mean, how else does this work? If, if the gospel message is simply you need to uh, obey Christ, you need to believe in Christ because he died for you as a criminal, he was tortured for you and died in your place, period. I mean, that, that's, that's not a... I mean, that's, I mean, maybe if you come from a Catholic background, maybe that's what you've been told your whole life. So that makes sense to you. But when you think about that gospel, that's not a gospel much of hope, is it? Now that's that, friends. A go, a gospel of guilt and shame might change your behavior, but it won't change your heart. Only hope will change your heart. And there's no way a gospel of guilt and shame can fundamentally transform every culture and every country that it has encountered for the last 2,000 years. So there must be more to the gospel than you should believe in Jesus because he died for you. Because, okay, so yeah, I'm guilted. Maybe I should do this because he did something for me I couldn't do or I should have done, but I didn't. But we need a gospel of hope. The gospel actually is, yes, Jesus died for you to conquer sin and death on your behalf. He was raised from the dead to prove that he had the power to do it, and he is coming back so that his full salvation is finally realized throughout all of creation, and that includes you. Friends, that'll preach. That will preach. So let's step back here before we jump into the second question. What does the Bible teach about Jesus' second coming? That he's coming back. He's coming to save those who eagerly wait for Him, and He's going to be unstoppable, victorious, and it's going to be unmistakable. That's what the Bible teaches about the second coming. It's a necessary doctrine to the Christian faith. Without the second coming, I mean, we, we, we just have an incomplete doctrine. We have an incomplete gospel. Now, what does the second coming mean if you are a Christian? So you got three verses. Now I want to give you three words. The first word is grace. The second word is home. And the last word is hope. Grace, home, and hope. Write that down if you're a note taker. What does the, the second coming mean? If you're a Christian, it means grace, it means home, it means hope. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is if we are honest, friends, I'm going to um, go to First Peter right now. If you got a Bible, you can go to First Peter as well. We're going to look at that in a little bit. First Peter is right after Hebrews. What do we mean by grace? If we are honest, we probably have mixed feelings about Jesus' second coming. Now, on the one hand, you, you, you're kind of excited because you know what the Bible teaches about it, but if you're being honest, you're kind of nervous because how is my life, how is your life going to stack up when Jesus asks for me, asks me to give an account for the way I live my life, right? 2 Corinthians five ten talks about that. I will have to give an account for my life, whether it, what I've done, deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. I don't know about you, but I get a little nervous about that, right? I get a little nervous about how that will work, how that will go with Jesus, um, Maybe he'll be a little bit disappointed, right? I might think, oh, man, Tristan and, and Toby, they'll, they'll be okay, but I'm a little nervous how, I'm, how it's going to shake out for me, right? Uh, I'm a little bit nervous. Maybe me and Ramin are going to have to get together and think of a strategy here because we got to give an account for the way we lived. Here's the great news. The good news is Peter says we got to change the way we think about that. Look what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter puts our minds in a different direction, and and 1st, 2nd Peter is great because a lot of what he's talking about is what's happening towards the end, and this is what Peter writes, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you catch the the thing I want to point your attention to? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you or be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Guys, Jesus' acts towards His people from beginning to end is, can be described by one word, grace. Ephesians 2.8.9 in the past tells us we've been saved by what? Grace. Hebrews 4.16 says, Now in the present we can come before the throne of grace. Peter tells us when Jesus comes in the future, set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to you. Guys, when I think about the second coming, what Peter's saying, when you think about the second coming, you shouldn't be worried about what kind of account you're going to give. What you need to do is set your hope fully on the grace that will be given to you. Christ's second coming is another display of His grace towards His people. Friends, that's, that's, a, that's a motivation to live for. Not, not I got to live this way so, so I, I can make it past that judgment. I got to live this way because, well, what's going to happen if I don't? I want to live this way because, man, even when He shows up, I'm going to get even more grace, but not just grace. Let me read to you from Philippians. You, you can go there if you want. Philippians chapter 3. We uh, are very familiar with this verse because we read it in this series. Philippians chapter 3, this is what Paul writes, starting in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Notice that phrase. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus coming back again. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we are awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So when we are awaiting the Savior, when He appears, not just grace that we're going to be given, we're going to be given glory. He's going to transform us into the same kind of glorious body that He has. How is He going to do this? Look at that prepositional phrase, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Did we read Revelation 19? That's a lot of power, isn't it? Paul says when he shows up we're going to be transformed to be like his glory. How is he going to do that? By the same power that enables him to subject all things to himself. We read in Revelation 19, he's got the power to do it. So the first word is that we get grace. I should I guess grace and glory. Those are the words we get. Friends, at the second coming of Christ, I don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. If you are nervous about it, if you are a Christian, you don't need to fear. Now, don't misunderstand. There's every reason to be afraid. I mean, we just read Revelation 19. If, that, if you're not afraid of a person like that, you haven't been paying attention. So there's every reason to be afraid, right? Revelation 19. But First Peter says, there's no reason to be afraid. Now you guys go, well, you're talking out two sides of your mouth. Yeah, I I do that a lot. That's because the Bible does that. Let me explain it this way Um, via a YouTube video that I watch. I was showing my family this thing called Beast Buddies, right? It's about a guy who raises wild animals. Well, off to the side, you know how YouTube always curates other videos you should watch if you like that one. I clicked on the link of this wonderful video of a woman in New Zealand who raised two lions when they were cubs. She got them when they were, you know, cubs. And then when they became full-grown, within like six, seven months, the government had taken them away. And, and they were, they, she was cool with that because you don't want two full-grown lions in your neighborhood. So the video was a, a picture, it was the video of her getting reunited with the lions six months after they were put into the reserve. So here comes this, you know, it's like a, a housewife woman, just, you know, probably, you know, about much smaller than I am, a small frame woman. And she walks up to the gate, and here comes two full-grown lions just bounding straight towards her. And then they jump on the gate, and they just—I mean, I was going to say maul. They—they—they they, they, they were licking her, and they were patting her on the face, and pawing her, and trying to jump into her arms. These hundred and seventy-five-pound lines, trying to jump into this woman's arms, and they were covering her just with kisses and licks and paws, and and she was shaking their manes and just kissing them, and it was like amazing. That woman has every reason to be afraid of those lions. Why? Because they're lions. I mean, come on, it's not that hard to figure out, right? They have claws and mouths that can just rip her head off, right? She has every reason to be afraid. Why does she have no reason to be afraid of those lions? Because there are, their affections are towards her. She has every reason to be afraid because they're lions. She has no reason to be afraid because their affections are towards her. And it's the same reality. We have every reason to be afraid of him, but we have no reason to be afraid of him. We have every reason to be afraid because we know who he is, but no reason to be afraid because his affections are towards his people. Hebrews 9.28 tells us, when he comes a second time, it is to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. And that salvation, that, and that word save is made known to us through another display of his grace and glory to his people. Friends, if you are trusting Christ for your righteousness, if you recognize that you are separated from God because of your sin, and you are a sinner, and you need a Savior, and you recognize that Christ is your Savior, you have nothing to fear. Now, I'm going to be clear. Christ, Christ alone, not Christ and your reputation, not Christ and your good deeds, not Christ and your standing in the community. Christ and Christ alone. If that is what your trust is in, you will receive grace on that day never before you've ever had like the day you first believed. So the second coming of Christ means many things, but if you're trusting in the work of Christ, it means grace to you when He comes back. That's the first word, grace. The second word is home. Now that may seem like a weird word to use to describe the second coming because that's not a word we normally associate with that. I use that word because that's the word Jesus used. Go to John 14. John 14. This is the word, the word home is the word Jesus uses to describe his second coming. If you're familiar with John 14, you know, they're a little bit nervous. Things are going sideways. Jesus just told them one of them will betray him and he's leaving and they're getting a a bit nervous. And this is what he comforts them with in John 14, verses 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. What a warm picture Jesus is trying to paint for his disciples. What a warm picture that that he's talking about, I'm leaving to my father's house. And I'm going to be preparing rooms, and when I come back for you, I'm going to take you so that you can be with me. Friends, when we talk about the Lord's coming, it can be very easy to lose the forest from the trees. It's easy to do. I mean, if you're, if you're at all familiar with it, because you get caught up in, I mean, the, the interesting, you know, ultimate battle against good and evil, right? The, the apocalyptic signs and symbols. What does all that stuff mean? And we forget that according to what Jesus and John are saying in his Gospels, The second coming means going home, that you have a place to belong, that you're not going to be out of place, you're not going to feel like a guest, you're going to feel like family, you're going to feel right at home with your heavenly Father. And I often think, was John thinking about Jesus saying this when years later, when he would become this wise leader within the early church, when he wrote the first, second, and third letters, his epistles, to the churches? Go to 1 John with me. I wonder if he must have been thinking about John 14 when he wrote this, what he wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Listen to what John writes. Beloved, we are God's children now. So, so, so John's thinking back to Jesus, talking about Jesus being our father and being in a home, and he's pulling on all this familial metaphors. And He says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Notice the already, not yet. We are God's children, but we're not exactly what we're going to be when when it all comes to an end. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. What? Now, what's he talking about? When he appears, he's referring to the second coming. When he appears, we shall be like him. John, how in the world is that going to happen? He says so right here. We shall be like him because... We shall see him as he is. So John's saying, look, look, when, when, when you see your father, when you see Christ, you will be able to be just like him. How? Because you'll be, able to see, you'll be able to see him. Now, I wonder if that's what Peter was referring to when he talked about the grace that's going to be revealed to us. He says, look, you guys are going to receive grace. You know what that grace is? You're going to become just like him. How's that going to happen? You will actually get a vision of who he is. But notice what John also says there, verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies, in other words, everyone who has this hope purifies himself as He, speaking of Jesus, is pure. You'll notice there's always a constant dynamic in the Bible. That as a Christian, we live different lives. We live changed lives, not because of obligation, not because of guilt, not because of mere duty. Remember, guilt and shame might change behavior, but only hope can change a person's heart. And what is the Christian's hope? According to, according to Peter, it is the grace that's going to be revealed to us that includes our glory. According to John, is that one day we'll be exactly what we should be. So you can be motivated. Friends, if you are a Christian and you realize you are not what you should be, you might have been a Christian for five years, maybe you've been a Christian for 10 years, 15 years, you realize, I am not what I should be. First John is saying, one day you will be. Be motivated by that. One day you will be exactly what you should be, and that should be encouraging. Grace, home, last word is hope. I want to take you to Acts chapter 3. I do want you to read this with me. Acts chapter 3. We've been a lot uh, spending a lot of time in the book of Acts in our series. Acts chapter 1, we focus on the ascension. Acts chapter 2, we talked about Pentecost. And here we are in Acts chapter 3. I want to point you out a, a passage that talks about the second coming. Now, I want to give some of the context here. So. Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, no, no, I'm not going to set up the kingdom. I'm coming back, so I need you guys to hold tight, but don't worry. I'm going to empower you to do the job I have you to do. Acts chapter 2, we see the realization. The Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost. The new covenant is here. The new people of God are made. Boom, the church, I mean, overnight, thousands and thousands join the church. In Acts chapter 3, things settle down a little bit, right? Now there's this growing church, and they're trying to live life together, and John and and Peter walk up to the temple, as they always do, as good Jews do, and they go to the gate, the gate called Beautiful, and as they're walking in, they see somebody that they've probably seen for years, the scripture tells us he was there all his life, a paralytic man. And as they're walking into the gate, Peter and John say, you know what, Let's, let's heal this guy. And so they heal this paralytic man who everyone knows. If you read Acts chapter 3, everyone knew the guy. He had been there for all his life. Then he starts jumping around for joy, celebrating, and Peter just draws a crowd. And Peter takes advantage of this and preaches the gospel. This is what he says. This is part of Peter's sermon. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Did you catch that? All in that one sentence there, Peter's talking about the ascension, Peter's talking about salvation, Peter's talking about the second coming of Christ, all there. He says that the Christ, the heaven must receive him, and he should be there until the time where God restores all things. Friends, the reason I chose this miracle here, and if you have time, read it about this lame beggar being healed, because at one end, at the same time, this miracle is an x-ray and a preview of what we're talking about. What do I mean by x-ray? As an x-ray, the healing of this paralyzed man makes visible to the outside, the unseen inner cure that faith in Jesus brings. So, so what, what we didn't read, but what you see in chapter 3, after healing this man, the, the apostles are brought before the religious leaders, and they're in trouble for bringing this healing. And you see in the text that the man that was paralyzed, he's totally happy. He's hanging out with them. He's like, even if they're going to get in trouble, he's walking again. So we know his heart has been transformed. And the point of the healing is, as amazing as it is to see a paralytic man who for 40 years could not walk, instantaneously get up and have strength. And friends, think of all the medical miracles that that had to entail. As incredible as that is, that's just an x-ray of of how incredible it is that the cure of heart that Jesus brings to hearts that have been paralyzed by sin. So the point is, Peter's saying in this narrative, look, if this was amazing, that his physical body was restored, you ain't seen nothing because what you don't see is his internal self has been restored. That's the x-ray. The reason it's a great preview is that this miracle is a foreshadowing of God's restorative power to bring all things back to the way they should be in Christ's kingdom when He comes in His fullness. Friends, let me say this as a way to understand reading your Bible. Every miracle in the Gospels, every miracle you will ever read in the Gospels, it is not there just because it's cool, as cool as some of them are walking on water and all that kind of thing. As cool as those are, they're not there for just a wow factor. Every miracle was to do two things. It was to confirm the identity of who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah, the one that God had sent into the world to redeem and renew and recreate uh, creation, and to point forward to the nature of God's kingdom when it would come in its fullness. So the feeding of the 5,000, it wasn't just because they were hungry. Jesus was showing in this world, there is want and lack, but in the kingdom, there's abundance. Nobody will be without. Everyone will have more than they need. When Jesus restored sight to the blind, it wasn't just this guy, this guy needed a break. It was to show in this world, it is darkness, but in my kingdom, there is light. There is, you can see by the clear light When Jesus healed people of leprosy, and leprosy, mind you, it was a most, uh, uh, the disease was such a metaphor for sin because you literally wasted away, You you became dirty and impure, and you started to fall apart. The reason he healed the leper was to show, look, in this world where there's impurity, and you're fragmented physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, in the kingdom, it's just pure. In the kingdom, there's wholeness. When He raised the dead, it wasn't just because it was an amazing thing. He says, look, in this world, there is death and destruction. In my kingdom, there's only life. Every miracle He performed was to show this is what life is going to be like in my kingdom. Abundance, life, light, purity, wholeness. And we see here in that miracle a little preview of that. And that was the hope that fueled the early church, that this is what Christ's second coming would mean. We don't live there now. We're we're not, we're in the, that's the not yet. We're already experiencing, we're already experiencing some light. We can see things clearly that we didn't see before. We're already experiencing purity and a restoration of our wholeness, but it's just not yet. Friends, can you see why the second coming of Christ was a dominant theme to the early church? In fact, friends, our expectation, our longingness for it is a good metric to, to gauge whether or not we actually understand and believe biblical truth, right? This is what Peter says. Peter says this in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Oh, let me read in the NIV. I haven't done my notes here. This is what Peter writes. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, and what Peter's talking about is the creation of the new heavens and new earth, when everything that is now known gets turned over. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? It's a good question. In light of what God is going to do, God's going to upset everything, turn it all over, bring in the new heavens and new earth, what kind of people should you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Friends, in other words, the second coming of Christ, at the very least, ought to reorder our priorities, shouldn't it? At the very least it ought to reorder the way we live our lives. I was talking to a young man uh, in my community group, and I was so impressed with him. Just got recently got married, offered a promotion at the office, and he and his wife were praying about it, and he decided to turn it down. Not only was he turning down a significant increase in pay, but as he said it, he's also turning down a significant burden of responsibilities that he would have had to take on, understandably so. And while he would have liked the promotion and he would have liked the pay... He also recognized that that would give him less time to lead his family and less time to be a part of what's going on in the people of God that he's been loving here at Christ Community Church. He was so impressed by this young man making decisions about his life, letting his faith inform the way he's going to live his life and not the other way around. Not letting his life shape the way he wants his faith to work, but letting his faith shape the way he wants his life to work. Can I just tell you, so often in counseling, I am constantly speaking to men or women who have spent their lives climbing the corporate ladder only to find out at the end of the day the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. <laughs> Guys, I'm not saying don't invest in the things of this world. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I believe in that, right? We're supposed to redeem the world. The question I'm asking is, what rubric, what, what, what grid are you using to make the decisions of your life? If your vision of life just happens to end at the horizon of this life, you're not getting the full picture. And the second coming of Christ should help us realize, man, we've got different priorities. We've got different priorities to live by. So I want you to ask yourself, how are your priorities? Are they lined up with what Peter just talked about? Are there some priorities you need to change? Are there some decisions you have to make that should be a little bit different now because of what we talked about, Jesus' soon coming? Are there relationships that maybe you need to cut off because they're not helping you continue to go for, you know, they're not helping you in your walk with Christ? Are there relationships you need to cultivate because somebody needs your ministry or you need somebody else's ministry to help you grow to be like Christ? What are the decisions and the priorities you have in your life? Are they being shaped by what Scripture teaches? Because Scripture teaches us that He is coming back. He's coming back to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Are we eagerly awaiting him? Before you answer that, the answer to that is seen in my priorities, the way I make my decisions, the values, the way I spend my time, the way I spend my resources. When he comes back, we're going to receive grace, not judgment. We're going to receive belonging. We're going to have a home. We're not going to be homeless. There's not going to be guilt for the wrong, but a grace and, and celebration for all that is made new and right. Friends, in our, in our study of the sec, this one act of righteousness in Christ, I've heard from a lot of people that before they just thought about Jesus as, well, He died on the cross for me and that, that's about it. I mean, they, they weren't being trite about it, but they're realizing there's so much more to know about Jesus and what He has done. I want to cl- conclude by saying I hope, if anything, this study's done is whetted your appetite to learn more about your Savior. Not so you can answer questions better at community group, right? But so that your desire to know Him is increased. Your ability to worship Him is deepened. Because that's what we need to be. We need to be the kind of people that are gripped by the grace that's going to be ours. The realization that we have a home and that we have an eternal hope. Because that, as I say constantly, that's what our world needs, right? That's what our world needs more than anything. And we have those answers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, this series to just take some time and look at this act of righteousness that Paul talks about in Romans 5. Lord, if there's anything we've discovered, that our salvation has many more facets to it, like uh, sides to a diamond, and each one of them are beautiful. Father, forgive us for thinking we know all that there is to know and maybe even being somewhat bored by who you are, who your son is. Help us to rekindle a fascination with the saving work of Christ on our behalf, so much so that it excites us to talk to others who do not have this hope, who do not have an expectation of grace in their future. They have an uncertainty about the future. They have a fear about the future, but we have grace, home, and an eternal hope for our future. Father, help our light shine ever brighter as things seem to get ever darker. That is why you've got us here, Help us be faithful to the task in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.